Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts. Open our hearts, Lord, so that you can put into it wonderful truths out of your word. Truths about the Lord Jesus Christ that will make our hearts burn in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 31. Now, here we are. Okay, so follow along here as we read uh, from verse 17. Or really, verse 14. 14, 31, 14. Rachel and Leah answered and said unto him, Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him strangers? For he hath sold us and hath quite devoured also our money. For all the riches which God hath taken from our father, that is ours and our children's. Now then, whatsoever God hath said unto thee, do. Then Jacob rose up, set his sons and his wives upon camels, and he carried away all his cattle and all his goods, which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting, which he had gotten in Padanaram, for to go to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. And Jacob stole away unawares to Laban the Syrian, and that he told him not that he fled. So he fled with all that he had, And he rose up and passed over the river and set his face toward the Mount Gilead. And it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled. And he took his brethren with him and pursued after him seven days' journey, and they overtook him in the land of Gilead. And God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said unto him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob either good or bad. All right, now, in our last study, what we did is we looked at Jacob's wives and how they said to him in verse 16, for all the riches which God hath taken away from our father, that's ours and our children's. Now, what did we see in our last study from verse 9 in this chapter when Jacob talked about God doing that, taking away the cattle of Laban? Who did Jacob say that God gave that Laban's cattle to? Him, yeah, right, verse 19, right? And God had taken away the cattle of your father and given it to me. So from verse 9, when Jacob talks about the cattle that God took away from Laban, who does Jacob say it belongs to? He says it belongs to him. God had taken it away and given it to me. So now that Jacob has established that fact, (laughs) that the cattle that, that God took away from Laban belongs to Jacob, we can just put that issue to sleep, but not quite, Because it turns out that Rachel and Leah, they don't quite agree with Jacob that the cattle that God took away from Laban belongs to Jacob. So they don't come along and say, oh, yes, Jacob, you're right. God had taken away from our father, and that's yours. That's not the way it reads in verse 16. Verse 16, all which God had taken away from our father, they don't say, that's yours, Jacob. But they say, no way. Rachel and Leah don't agree at all with him. And they say, no, all the riches which God has taken away from our father, that's ours. And our children's. 
So somehow, Rachel and Leah just don't see Jacob in this picture of ownership. Rachel and Leah see that all the cattle is theirs and their children, and somehow they're going to let Jacob uh, in on, on these cattle because, you know, I guess he's the father of their children. So, you know, we see this, don't we have a happy home here? Now we live in all perfect peace and harmony with perfect agreement, right? It's just like Bert Poole said about his wife, Muriel. He said, I'm the head of the home because Muriel said I could be. (laughs) (laughs) So now that that Rachel and Leah have set this record straight about who owns the cattle, that Jacob has, after all, poured his life into for the last 20 years, the women see that what happened was that that they gave it to them. Okay, then they go on. At the end of verse 16, the women, and they say, now then, whatsoever God has said unto thee, do. See? When Jacob heard those words, he, he, he you know, he, he, he's like bird fool, you know. He says, okay, now I'm the head of this house because Rachel and Leah said it can be, you know. And that's the way it was. And if we just give a generous portion of benefit of the doubt to Rachel and Leah and look at what they said on the surface, whatsoever God has said unto thee to do, that's a model statement, that's a model statement for a wife to make to her husband. That's a model statement. Whatsoever God has said unto thee, do. That's a statement where the wife says to the husband, I'm right with you. you know, go ahead and do what God said for you to do. And I hear a person who says, well, God told me to do something, and you have to be very careful. Like I said last week, you have to be very careful. You know, uh, Christian employees have come to us and told us, you know, that God told them to do something that we didn't agree with, and we say, you know, that's funny. You'd think that God would have told us too, you know, but, and I wonder why God didn't copy us on that directive. We should check our spam file. Maybe it went in there. <laughs> Maybe God told us when it's spam. We have to check. Anyway, so we have to be very careful whenever we say something like, God told me to do something, because, you know, when we say that, we might surprise God, and he might say, I did? I don't remember saying that. And that was the problem that the prophet Jeremiah spoke about. Those who were kept saying that, God told me when God didn't tell them. In Jeremiah 14, 14, it says, Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. Is God complaining about it? He says, Look, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. See? So that's in Jeremiah 14, 14. Jeremiah, also God speaking, in Jeremiah 23, 21, he said, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. So I never say, you know, God told me, because like I said last week, you know, the most unpalatable meal you can eat is your own words. And so, so this statement in verse 16 from the wife is a recognition that the wife makes where she says that God is working through her husband. Now, that does not mean that, her, that what her husband says and does is what God necessarily says and does. So also, there must be caution not to take the position whatsoever God has said unto thee do, and I'll determine when God is speaking to you or not. Let's put it this way. It's very dangerous for a wife to take the position against verse 16 and say, well, if God has told you to do something that I don't agree with, then then, it comes down to whatever God told you don't do. 
Yeah. A wife will be the best helpmate for her husband if she does not hinder what God is telling her husband to do. So if a wife does not agree with what her husband wants her to do, the wife's best course is to not argue with her husband and not try to, to change. Her best course is to go to God and ask God directly if this is his will. And if it's not, to ask God to change her husband's mind. And when praying for something, there's always got to be a scriptural basis for the request. In the case of the husband, you know, the wife doesn't agree with the husband, then she goes to prayer, and her spiritual basis for that prayer is there's got to be peace in the home. That's the will of God, shalom in the home. There's got to be peace in the home. First okay? Corinthians 14.33, First Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. You know, the passage we're now thinking about because of Christmas, Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Romans 15.33, the God of peace be with you all, Romans 15.33. Second Thessalonians 3.16, now the Lord of peace himself give you peace, always, by all means, the Lord be with you all. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, and Hebrews 13.20, Hebrews 13.20, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing this sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. But what Jacob heard his wives say in verse 16, now then, whatsoever God has said unto thee, do, Jacob heard what he was looking for, what he needed was a vote of confidence from his wives. Yeah. So Jacob, now having this endorsement that he needed from his wives, he takes action in verse 17. Jacob rose up and set his sons and his wives upon camels. He's got 11 sons, and he's got at least one daughter. He's got four wives, that's his problem. And he puts them all on camels, and off they go. And he leaves with all his cattle, as it says in verse 18. He carried away all his cattle and all his goods which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting, which he'd gotten in Padanaram for to go to Isaac, his father, in the land of Canaan. That's verse 18. Now, in order to see what verse 18 is really saying, it has to be read as a set of three. You have to read verse 17 and verse 18 and then verse 19 together in order to see this contrast here. Now, I'm gonna read this, verses 17 and 18 and 19 together and then I'm going to ask you, you tell me what contrast you see in these three verses, okay? So verses 17, here we go. Now you look for the contrast. Then Jacob rose up, set his sons and his wives upon camels, carried away all his cattle and all his goods, which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting, which he had gotten, in Padanaram, for to go to Isaac, his father, in the land of Canaan. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. Okay, tell me, where's the contrast? That's it. See, this is, you see this contrast here? Verse 17 and 18, it tells us Jacob set his sons, his wives, and the daughter on the camels, carried away all his, verse 19, Rachel, stolen the images that were. How many times does it say that Jacob took what was his in verses 17 and 18? Look at verse 17. How many times does it emphasize that what Jacob took was his? How many? Twice, Twice right. Jacob rose up and took his sons and his wives upon the camels. How many times are we told in verse 18 that Jacob took what belonged to him? 
Verse 18. How many? Four. He carried away all his cattle, which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting that he had gotten. All right already. (laughs) How many times do we have to keep saying that? Okay. So in other words, what's emphasized in verses 17 and 18 was that Jacob took what was his six times. Six times it's emphasized in verses 17 and 18. His, his, he got it, he got it. It was his, it was his. To set up this contrast in verse 19 that Rachel had stolen the images that were her father's. Stolen were her father's. See, Jacob only took what God had given him, what was his, by right. By contrast, Rachel took something that was not hers. See, Jacob... He had access to Laban's flocks. How do we know that Jacob had access to Laban's flocks? He was taking care of them. He was the caretaker of flocks. It's very easy. He could have just snatched them and said, well, that dirty rat, that should be mine too, and that should be mine too, but you know, anyway. But he only took what was given to him by the agreement that he had with Laban, but not Rachel. Rachel stole the images that were her father's. See, what were those images? Well, the Hebrew word here is teraphim, teraphim. These were like family idols, probably the images that they worshiped, that they prayed to, that they asked advice from. This is idolatry. It's just idolatry. You know, the chapel here, we used to have a couple of missionaries in Kyoto, Japan, named Jack and Connie Masson. Who remembers Jack and Connie Masson? A few, okay. So my wife and I, we visited Jack and Connie, and we stayed with them in a house that they were actually staying in it wasn't their house that they were staying in. It was this nice house in Kyoto, and it was very nice, but the owners were not Christians, and they hesitated to stay in the house because I don't know how it got built this way, but somehow the house got built in the wrong direction. That was very important to them. The house had to be built in the right direction. There's something about the sun. I don't know what. Anyway, I didn't mind it, but they didn't want to stay there because the house was built in the wrong direction. And I remember the first morning, they were having breakfast in the kitchen, and there in the corner was this shelf. I said, what's that, Jack? He said, well, that's the God shelf. <laughs> I said, no, the little gods up there. Those are the family idols. Yeah? And teraphim were typically were family idols. And they were ornately decorated usually, and they were consulted for direction and guidance in life. And teraphim, they probably resembled human forms. You don't know, but, but Michal, David's wife, she put a teraphim in the bed, in David's bed, and then pulled the covers up over it and said, well, David's sleeping, to trick Saul's messengers into thinking that David was in bed. The king of Babylon, he consulted Teraphim for advice. We're told that in Ezekiel 21.21. Ezekiel 21.21 says, for the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He made his arrows bright. He consulted with images, Teraphim. He looked in the liver. I don't know what that means, but anyway, all this is some sort of hocus-pocus superstition stuff. So these household teraphim images were a continual problem for Israel because they represented the idolatrous, ungodly life that Abraham walked out of. Abraham, lech lecha, he says, go walk, walk, walk you. He, he walked out of all of that in Syria. But these teraphim were strange gods. They were a continual problem in Israel. They were a continual problem for Jacob. And this is just where we're getting the first glimpse of it here. And he seems to have tolerated them for several years until finally enough was enough and there was a showdown. 
when he finally commanded his house in Genesis 35, 2, Genesis 35, 2, Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you. Be clean, change your garments. See, that was enough is enough in the showdown. And those strange gods were a continual problem for Joshua until he had his time of enough is enough and his showdown when he said to Israel in Joshua 24, 2, Joshua 24, 2, Joshua said unto all the people, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in the old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then Joshua 24, 14, Joshua 24, 14, a little bit farther down the same chapter. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So these teraphim images were strange gods. They were idols. And how does God view idolatry? Well, he says in Romans 1.23, Romans 1.23, God says, let me tell you how I see idolatry. I see it as they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like unto corruptible men and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. What does that mean when it says that idolatry is changing the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things? Well, what it means is something like a picture, an analogy, right? An analogy. Picture a man who's a very good husband, very good provider for his wife. He's taken care of all of her needs, and he's a really good husband. And he goes away on a trip alone. And while he's gone, his wife goes out, and she gets some clay, and she makes a model of a spider. (laughs) And she tells everyone, this is what her husband looks like, the spider, right? And imagine how shocked and angry he is when he comes home and he sees that and sees what she said. That's idolatry. That's what idolatry is. Romans 1.23, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creepy things. Idolatry changes a person's view of God from incorruptible and sinless to corruptible or sinful. See? And in Romans 1.23, we also see how in idolatry, there's always a progression downward. There's always a progression downward, and that's what you see there. First man, then birds, then four-footed beasts, then spiders, <laughs> creeping things. Idolatry always has a progressive downward view of God. So that's what idolatry, that's what these images were. Now, why did Rachel steal the images? Why did she do that? Why did she do that? Yeah. What drove Rachel to steal these images? Well, clearly covetousness. She coveted them. She stole the images. She stole her father's images because she coveted her father's images. Now, what do we know about covetousness? Well, first of all, we know the start of covetousness. Where does covetousness start? Covetousness starts in the heart. In the secret parts, in the secret recesses of the heart, that's where covetous start. 
Now, what do people typically covet? Hmm? Everything on Amazon. No. <laughs> what do people typically covet? Well, it says in Exodus 20:17, Exodus 20:17, the great Ten Commandments chapter, that yeah, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Hmm? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's, a house, a wife, a servant, a pos- any possession. God sums it all up and just says, anything that is thy neighbor's, which is what you said, anything is thy neighbor's. This is so important to God that he makes it one of the Ten Commandments. It's a commandment that's really not speaking about an act, like killing and adultery and bearing false witness. It's speaking about a heart attitude. It's speaking about something that's going on in the heart. You say, I'm commanding you, don't let this into your heart. That's a covetousness, covet, one of the Ten Commandments. It's a condition of the heart. Now, because where does covetousness lead to? Stealing, what she did. Covetousness ends in stealing as it did for Rachel, as it did for who is the famous one in Israel's history that brought a lot of trouble. That's it, Achan. When he took what was called the accursed thing, and that angered God. Not a good idea, says that angered God. It's not a good idea. First principle in life, don't make God mad. He made God mad. Achan described what happened. He told what happened in Joshua 7.20. Joshua 7.20, Achan said, here's what happened. Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned. I've sinned against the Lord, God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. And he describes, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. So boy, he figured out how much it was weight. Anyway, then I coveted them. See, I saw them. I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hidden the earth in the midst of my tent, silver under it. See, the three words that Achan said which turned out to be his last words. But the three words that he said, were, which were very telling, he said, I saw, coveted, took. Saw, coveted, took. Now, there are certain things in life that set a person up for covetousness. Making things a focus in life sets a person up for covetousness. Covetousness is to be focused on things Luke 12, 13, Luke 12, 13. One of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. You feel the frustration? And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? You hear the Jewish response? And he said unto him, Take he, he said unto them rather, he said unto them, sorry, it's very important what the scripture says. He said unto him, he said unto him, he said unto them. Right? Take heed, and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spoke a parable unto them, saying, the ground of a certain man, rich man, brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I'll pull down my barns, build greater. There will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. (music) 
another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org, or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Hi, this is Tom Cantor with Friendship with God. The hymn says, See all the world, wide open doors inviting. Soldiers of Christ, arise and enter in. Christians, awake, your forces all uniting. Send forth the gospel, break the chains of sin. Are you ready for your life to be used by God to send forth the gospel and break the chains of sin all throughout the 85 million souls in Ethiopia? We have an opportunity of a lifetime, a fully paid position to train 104 church planners who will bring the gospel all over Ethiopia. For nearly 10 years, Scanabodies has been in Ethiopia with the largest business in our region. On our beautiful 12-acre Wi-Fi connected compound is our wonderful new Ethiopia Bible Institute. Dormitory, study halls, dining hall, director's house, 400-seat auditorium. They're all built. They're waiting just for you to step out of your comfort zone and say, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. Why not trust God and go? You won't regret it. Call today, 1-800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051.